Welcome to the In Common Podcast. This is Stefan Partolo. Today's insight clip is taken from full episode 26, Michael and I's conversation with Emily Darling and Georgina Gurney. Emily is a conservation scientist with the Wildlife Conservation Society, and Georgina is a senior research fellow at the Center for Excellence for Coral Reef Studies at James Cook University. In the clip, they both reflect on lessons learned from a transdisciplinary coral reef monitoring project conducted with a wide range of partners in multiple countries. This is the In Common Podcast. One question I want to make sure to ask is what has been your favorite part about transdisciplinarity and being a part of a transdisciplinary project? And what has been like your least favorite part? The time zones. No, come on. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think my most favorite part is the really wonderful and interesting people that we get to meet through these projects and mm. the things that I learn mm-hmm. um, and the bringing that, all that different knowledge together and coming up with a different answer that, that is not just interesting from a curiosity, you know, curiosity academic point of view, but actually when we get to something where we really think that it's actually meeting an information need for decision makers, information need being at the, at the local scale or now this project that Emily and I was talking about, about the SNAP project, sort of work, working more trying to inform global policy. That's so inspiring and it's really, really energises my interest in my work when we're working on a problem that really feels like it actually is going to have um, some real world impact and difference. Yeah. All right. Definitely. That's well said. And your least favorite part other than the time zones? Um, the, I think it's, I think obviously it's quite um, difficult trying to balance the demands of academia and mm-hmm. the goalposts that we're always trying to meet in terms of, mm-hmm. well, I mean, even though, you know, increasingly academia is going towards more about trying to demonstrate that your research is having impact on the ground. You all really know all they actually care about when they're assessing your grants and <laughs> your job applications and so forth is your numbers of papers and where you publish them. But, yeah. um, so trying to, trying to sort of balance the demands of academia as well as um, the demands of real, you know, engaging with practitioners and trying to undertake projects that have real world impact is, is difficult because obviously sometimes, mm. sometimes those goals are aligned and that's wonderful, but often they're not and they um, both demand a lot of time. Yeah. I mean, it's like, how do you make yourself legible professionally by having the, the numbers of this and that that you need, but then also accomplish these other values that you have? Mm. Yeah. yeah. Right. I mean, I think the really, the great thing, is, you know, in recent years, obviously, as sustainability science and these kinds of approaches have been growing, the importance of taking a transdisciplinary approach and engaging with real-world actors is increasingly recognised. And as I meant, you know, just touched on before, I think, you know, it seems to be a lot of uh, research organisations, you know, across the globe are increasingly interested in researchers demonstrating impact of their work. So that's really really helpful but um yeah it is it is a challenge mm-hmm. yeah i mean do you think like programs like this macmon project which i know it has can serve as a kind of a flagship or a model for how this work can be done and encourage other folks to do more of it to kind of a proof of concept kind of thing i mean i know it's not the only thing like it but 
certainly seems to be one of the more ambitious examples. Oh, we didn't know what we were getting into at the time. <laughs> All right, fair enough. Maybe that's the best way <laughs> to get into most things. <laughs> oh, no, I mean, I was just going to say, obviously, there are many, many examples of transdisciplinary projects all over the place. I, I guess this, I mean, this is a nice example, perhaps, of where you're trying to do it also across countries, where that obviously adds another layer of complexity in terms of trying to your interactions in terms of cross-cultural differences and ways of interacting and so forth. But Mm. yeah, there's a lot of, there's increasingly a lot of projects out there like this that we can all learn from. Mm. Mm -hmm. So Emily, same questions to you. Ooh, fun. Um, So my, my favorite part of this process um, has been just, just as Georgie said, how much, uh, how much energy and inspiration it's given me personally as a scientist and as, and as a human. Um, it's just been fun. Um, it's been really fun to work with these wonderful people all over the world. Um, you, you know, meet new friends, learn about colleagues on a different level, really be be engaged with our sleeves rolled up trying to solve solve a problem. Um, so yeah, I I have absolutely adored this project and all the people involved in it for, in that way. Mm. Um, I, I, I absolutely agree with Georgie again on the hard parts. It's the incentives. Um, mm. We have very different incentives across sectors. And I think ultimately transdisciplinary projects will fail if they don't try to address those head on. And so one of the things we've tried to do early on in our SNAP project with uh, policymakers, academics, practitioners, uh, is just think about what, what do we need to be able to create the space to do this work? Uh, is it, you know, do we need resources? Do we need products? Do we need papers? Do we need reports? Do we need blogs? Do we need social media? You know, what, what, and, and then what can we share as incentives for all of us in, in this together so that we can show, you know, the people who pay us or the people who are going to pay us, hopefully if they give us a job, that we're achieving something. And I think that's where I get, um, you know, I can get the most sort of frustrated at, when transdisciplinary science doesn't work, it's because the the system, the system, <laughs> the system, the system of these different sectors just doesn't allow for that creativity and space. Yeah. Um, I think we've been very, very lucky in the people we've worked with and the institutions we've worked across and being funded by SNAP that they see this creative uh, visionary, you know, or this this opportunity to think differently as being really good. But then, of course, each individual actor still needs to, at the end of the day, come back to what they need. Uh, to do for their jobs. And um, I wish there was, I wish there was more uh, agency that everyone in our group could take to, you know, press pause on the rest of our lives and say, look, here's, this is our six months that we've got to influence the next 10 years of conservation. Like I, I really cannot respond to this reviewer request right now. Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I really, um, yeah. So I think, you know, I, I, yeah, I think about that a little bit. Um, and as Georgie said, it takes time. Um, so this project is, we're five years on now. Um, and, you know, we're, we're just starting to, to really feel like we're seeing some of the products that people would expect from this type of work. Um, mm-hmm. Whereas I feel like, you know, we had, we've been lifted off for three, three years now. We've done two repeated monitorings. Um, some of the you know, most comprehensive social and ecological monitoring in uh, four countries around the world. We've added two additional countries 
because they wanted to. <laughs> They're like, hey, this is cool. Can we write this into our, our That's great. report? And they're like, yes, this is fabulous. Um, we've developed you know, a, a new software tool to help us, which is uh, Mermaid for ecological work. We've adopted open source data tools, for, you know, open data kit for our social work. Um, but that was all just sort of in the background. And so hmm. I felt like I was living the secret life of being a transdisciplinary scientist for five years because nobody knew that this was where all my oh, that's so interesting. was going into. Um, yeah, yeah. So I'd really like to find, to think more as well about, you know, I think a lot about science communication. I think it's of course critical um, in, you know, in this particular work that I do. And I'd really just like to think about, um, how can the system that, you know, Georgie's in as an academic or the system that I'm in as an NGO researcher, how do we just create that uh, flexibility and creativeness in our communication so that um, we don't feel like we're, we're behind or we should be doing something else because the system doesn't recognize what we're trying to do? Yeah. I mean, each one of these, I mean, this relates to that paper that I'm, you know, I've been working on with both of you, Georgie and Emily, on comparing these different large-scale database projects. I mean, each one essentially feels like a case study and each one of these projects of that compares a lot of different cases feels like an example of you know self-governance like these groups need to get together and figure out how they're actually going to govern themselves how are they going to try to align incentives based on the different benefit streams that different people are getting how do you and you know as a commons person i can't avoid thinking about things like the you know the, the mermaid tool that you mentioned emily developing you know, that sounds to me like a straightforward public good that was, you know, that now can benefit other people. But, the, you know, the problem with public good provision is always that people are going to free ride. So how do you actually incentivize folks to develop that stuff? You know, that was a powerful way to describe it as being in, invisible to the external world, not being legible as you're developing those things. That sounds like a challenging thing to try to do for several years. I mean, the lag time there, I think would be, I think I could see a lot of similar projects and groups not succeeding through that initial, you know, two to three year phase. And it, it's not another lesson that I feel like I'm hearing is you've said it several times. It, it's like, it's the people mm -hmm. that really incentivizes folks. I mean, and, and it's about incentives, right? Like when I think about my successful collaborations, pretty much every one of them, maybe this is like necessary, but not sufficient. It involved the fact that I, I liked the people that I was working with in some way. But of course, then, the, then, then there's the question of how do you actually get the right people in the room? which is, you know, if, it, if ultimately that's what makes the difference. And I think, you know, there's a strong emotional intelligence, intuition that, that that is a big thing that makes a difference. Then it's about selection. My impression is that some of this was also fairly bottom up in terms of like who was involved, et cetera. But were you all deliberative about that? Trying to like get um, a diversity of opinions or making sure that everyone could kind of play well together? Or was it kind of seren serendipity purely and people ended up just getting along and being able to compromise when they needed to. Chargy, you should take that one. I know we've, we've thought about this <laughs> together, if you want to. Yeah, well, I think, um, you know, collective action challenge. I think there's <laughs> been, someone wrote a lot about that sometime. I mean, a lot of people have written a lot about that sometime. In all these people. principles that we kind of write about in our academic work when we try and think about overcoming collective action challenges related to commons, you know, all these little thinking about the IAD framework and the elements that are conducive for successful outcomes in terms of trust and reciprocity and mm -hmm. uh, procedural justice and fairness <laughs> and all those things. I mean, all of those things come out obviously important in these kinds of situations as well in the way that um, everyone interacts together in trying to develop these projects. 
And um, I'd say in some of the work that Emily and I have done together, the personalities are in the room that are, are just there because of, um, well, you know, it, I think it's very important who who was in the room and the personalities in the room and if they get along well together. So I think getting that balance of the expertise as well as people who are likely to get on and be great collaborators is, is really very important. Mm-hmm. As well as, and I'd, I'd really echo that as well, in that even once you have the people together in the room, um, how do we create the space for all voices to be heard? Um, and that's one thing that I know I've really been trying to work on as a facilitator and certainly learning a lot from other facilitators um, is just thinking about how do we break down, you know, different uh, cultural approaches to collaboration, to mm-hmm speaking to raising your voice how do we recognize the power structures that are in a room just based on experience or years in the field um how we break down privilege around who you know raising different voices as well or or asking different voices to step back um and it's it's hard and i think it takes a yeah it's hard um but it's so rewarding once we've been able to do this and i think one of the one of the key pieces of success um has been long-term funding and so I think as people in our group, you know, particularly from the, the practitioner side who've been, you know, choosing indicators that mean something for their programs to rolling it out, is that we've had a 10-year funding window from the MacArthur Foundation. Um, and their program officer has really just fought for, fought for us in ways that I can never thank her enough for. Um, uh, especially as the MacArthur Foundation is now, you know, twilighting out its biodiversity conservation funding work. Um, mm-hmm. And so this you know, this sustained funding really let us uh, have credibility to our stakeholders uh, and say, look, we're going to be doing this for a long time. We'd love to have you involved. Whereas I think, as we all know, uh, you know, shorter grant cycles don't always have that. You're, you're scrambling, you got to get something done. You don't have time to really think about who needs to be in the room. You don't right. have time to go. Yeah. So I would just really also uh, pay a, a, a homage to, yeah, donors and program officers who've believed in us uh, mm. to have long-term funding for this work. Like taking the yeah. long view. Yeah. Just to pick up on a point Emily just made. Yeah. Are we trying? That's one of the biggest challenges that we um, face when have, holding these different workshops for the projects is trying to provide a space for all voices to be heard. And for example, in the, um, the last SNAP workshop that we held, we had people, I think, from 14 different countries um, different age groups, different from academia and from um, practitioners and people at different um, stages of their career. And so, as Emily alluded to, obviously, they're quite all these different people have different approaches to thinking about hierarchy, about speaking out, about um, contesting things, about discussion, deliberation, all those kinds of things. And so, we really try and think a lot about how can we provide the spaces and think of different ways of providing spaces in a workshop setting for these different voices to be heard. So whether we try to use different kinds of mediums or different kinds of approaches that can draw out the voices that we don't usually hear so much um, without sort of putting people on the spot at all. And, And we also think about those things a lot as well when we're writing papers and trying to get feedback from different people. It's not just as simple as just sending out a manuscript and expecting everyone to read it, trying to think about different yeah. approaches to really get other people's opinions that are away from the usual ways that we usually do these things. And I think 
um, that's an ongoing learning <laughs> process and um, we find often after our workshops we have these you know feedback cards and we find those very useful in terms of trying to work out navigate um, those issues mm. what works what doesn't work and mm. what we need to do yeah. So if you were each going to share like one, if you could share like one lesson about what worked to, to reconcile, you know, 14 different sets of norms about how you should engage with different people. Like if you were going to give some advice to someone else who's starting this based on something you learned that makes that work, like what would that one exercise or did you break people into groups or like what's one lesson or an example of something that was like, okay, that, that worked. Um, well, I think, um, oh, you go, Emily. No, no, you, no, you go. Well, I was just going to say, obviously breaking people into smaller groups, I think is very important. And we found that uh, in many cases, activity-based things worked really well in terms of drawing people out, whether mm -hmm. we, that, for example, in terms of developing the Global Social Ecological Monitoring Program, these theories of change were a really great way of getting people engaged because it's tapped into their expertise and their knowledge and um, gave them the confidence to speak out and um, have their voices heard. And so, um, and again, like, you know, we've, we used Ostrom's framework as well as, we found that really useful as well as um, the last lot of workshops we had in terms of trying to get a bit, of, bit more um, con understanding of the context. So elucidating that social and ecological context in a sort of narrative type way, using that visual of the social ecological systems framework, which you mentioned before that, you know, people think it's a little complicated, but if we don't go into the second tier variables and all that stuff, just those, those boxes of the subsystems and the arrows are actually, it's a very sort of simple depiction of social ecological mm -hmm. systems that everyone sort of understands and can um, associate with. So I think those kinds of activities seem to work quite well. Okay. And Emily, yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I, I think um, one thing I, I, I wanted to add is that we're, you know, I'm always learning in these spaces, just as I know Georgie is. Um, yeah. And I'm constantly being surprised and then being like, oh, yeah, of course. Why didn't that, like, why didn't we think of that? But I think one thing that came out of our recent workshop was not making assumptions about uh, who should be or could be contributing to what aspect. To give an example, we had uh, an afternoon uh, session where we were really trying to define and, and explicitly identify what are you know key governance hypotheses that might be the critical pillars of whether something is successful or not, which of course there's such a deep history from uh, and theory about. Um, but what the way it happened is we happened to have all of the field program uh, people, you know, having this space where there actually weren't that many academic scientists in the room. And so they were able to provide there are, you know, examples from what worked in Kenya when co-management between, you know, what happened in those fishers meetings that seemed to work for them or, you know, in Madagascar when conflict, you know, happened, how was that dealt with? And so it was really fascinating because, you know, we had people like Graham Epstein and Natalie Ban, you know, sitting at the back of the room mm. um, and they were just so gracious in how they added richness and added citations and theory when it was needed but in general step back and let 
let the the practitioners really uh, dive into dive into their experience um and you know what one of the most inspiring things to me would be just you could see the the sparks and creativity as you know the madagascar perspective came then the kenya perspective was like oh yeah we've seen that same thing and fiji was you know thinking well actually we see something different here and so this oh that's cool rich discussion and uh yeah so i think you know if i designed that exercise maybe Four years ago, I would have said, well, we're, you know, we're going to have the academics uh, lead the way they have the experience here. And then we'll, you know, we'll see what the practitioners think. And I actually think just the way that this happened is that um, the, the practitioners were, you know, were the ones leading the way and the academics were there as a support. Um, and so I would really recommend people to um, not have assumptions and then during a workshop to actively challenge those assumptions, play with power, you know, how we think about power play with knowledge and experience um, and uh, some really, yeah, I think some of my most surprising moments came from those types of experiments. To explore more episodes of the podcast as well as our blog, please visit our website www.incommonpodcast.org. You can also subscribe to the podcast on just about any podcast player. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram, both at InCommonPod. You can also visit our Patreon page if you would like to support us, and the links to all these websites can be found in the show notes.